Welcome to Scoliosis World with Dr. Morningstar, the audio podcast for all things scoliosis. And now, Chief Science Officer for ScoliSmart and Clinic Director for ScoliSmart Clinics Michigan, Dr. Mark Morningstar. Well, hello, everybody. Of course, I'm Dr. Mark Morningstar. This is July 2021's version of our Scoliosis World podcast. So uh, this month, I want to kind of kind of go back to the roots of scoliosis, so to speak, and kind of get into why it is that uh, I think really we should be attacking scoliosis as a whole condition, not necessarily just as a spinal curvature. And, and the reason I say that is because, of course, you know, if I were to walk out here into my local Grand Blanc community and I ask 100 people what scoliosis is, of course, 100 out of 100 are going to tell me it's the curvature that we notice or, or visualize on an x-ray. And the problem with that is that it ignores 40 years worth of research published worldwide. And, and it's that 40 years of research that I'm going to sort of get into a little bit today because I think it's important to understand that this, this research has been out there. And a lot of people, you know, like with Scully Smart, a lot of people just assume that this is just our own internal research. And, and actually, that's just, you know, most of that is not true. Do we have some of our own research to kind of verify some of these older findings? Absolutely. But the reality is a lot of this published information was published long before I was ever even in clinical practice. I mean, I'm only approaching 20 years in clinical practice, and some of this stuff is going back to the early 1980s. I mean, that's almost going back to, you know, when I was born. So, I mean, I'm uh, unfortunately a bit older than that, but, um, you know, and we're, like I said, 40 years worth. So I'm going to kind of highlight some of that stuff. So as an example, um, the better way to look at scoliosis, or let's say the more complete way to look at scoliosis, is that the curvature is really just the predominant symptom of a larger picture. For example, I have, and I have pulled up uh, PubMed here on my laptop just to kind of give you an idea of some of the things that we kind of look through. And even going back to as early as I have one here, uh, this is 1997, talking about serotonin deficiency and melatonin deficiency in scoliosis. And, and it goes back further than that. And, and they're showing how the lack of those things creates the groundwork or lays the foundation to develop scoliosis. You know, we have other things here back, uh, you know, talking about melatonin in 2002, so 20 years ago. We have melatonin deficiency in 1995. We have serotonin deficiency in 1988. So, I mean, we're, we're going back a long way. And again, this isn't new information. Serotonin response problems, 1991 related to idiopathic scoliosis. So this isn't new information. And the problem is scoliosis management is so uh, orthopedically driven in the sense that it's very structurally based that most of this information gets completely ignored. And I mean, I understand that. At the end of the day, an orthopedic surgeon has the best intentions to treat the curve the best way he or she knows how. But at the end of the day, they're a surgeon and they do surgery. That's their job. And, you know, a surgeon's not going to help you manage your hormones. Your surgeon's not going to help you manage an underlying bone density problem. A uh, surgeon's not really going to help you manage an underlying um, um, neurotransmitter imbalance. All things that we know go hand in hand with scoliosis. 
couple of years ago, huge review on vitamin D and scoliosis, showing that vitamin D deficiency is very common in idiopathic scoliosis. When is the last time you heard a conventional doctor talk to you about your vitamin D level or getting it to a normal level or a healthy level to try to help improve bone status? So all of these things go hand in hand with scoliosis. And again, we're talking about hormones. Again, another very, very common abnormality in idiopathic scoliosis. I have here, this is a, a New England Journal of Medicine study, 1986. Scoliosis in young ballet dancers. In, now, just to give you an idea, the normal incidence in young children of scoliosis is about 3 to 5% per year, depending on the author. Okay. In this study, again, not a new study, information's been out a long time, shows that 24% of ballet dancers develop scoliosis. That's compared to 3 to 5% of the general population. In 83% of those kids, they had a delayed onset of puberty. Now, of course, ballet dancers are typically fit, and like a lot of kids with idiopathic scoliosis, they have very little body fat. And of course, in many times, it delays the onset of their menstrual cycles in girls. Well, that is also kind of part and parcel to the scoliosis condition. Some of those hormone changes, although most girls recognize them in terms of reproductive health, delayed onset, irregular periods, painful periods, cramping, etc., you know, the reality is those hormones are what are responsible for musculoskeletal lengthening as well as the reinforcement of long-term muscle memory in the brain, depending on the hormone that you're, you know, talking about. So these things are enormous. And the fact is, this is 1986. We're in 2021. Why isn't anybody doing anything with this information? The, the fact is they're not. They study it in academia, but in clinical practice, nobody's doing anything with this information, except Scully Smart. Now, you might have a other handful of practitioners giving kind of general blanket response as far as, okay, well, you know, take this broad spectrum supplement or do this or do this because, you know, you know, scoliosis kids are, are low in this. Well, not every scoliosis kid is or has the exact same deficiencies. Some may, dis may display more of a hormone distinct uh, problem. Some may have more of a hormone or, a, excuse me, a neurotransmitter problem. Some may just have a lower than average bone mineral density compared to their peers. So depending on what that child displays kind of helps you as the provider hone in on what is important for them as a management strategy. And really, it's almost kind of like uh, when we're talking about scoliosis, and this is the reason that you know, ScoliSmart clinics are, are pretty much scoliosis-dedicated clinics, is that you have to manage this as completely as possible. And you know, it's almost like rather than being a scoliosis specialist in the sense that um, you know, I'm only working on the curve, the reality is it's almost more like being a scoliosis general practitioner in the sense that you have to manage a lot of aspects of this condition if you want to do it right. And whether that means I have to you know, help a child with their hormone conversions or hormone production or neurotransmitter production or conversion or improve their bone mineral status or um, improve some of their brain hormone ratios or you know, some of their uh, muscular coordination firing patterns. I mean, there are on and on and on and on. Even going right down to the physical treatment, you know, at, you know, Scully Smart, the reason why we do 
uh, free phone consults for everybody is because we try to screen out the people who we don't think are going to benefit. And also, if the, in those people that may not benefit from what we do in terms of physical treatment, and by that I mean boot camp, activity suit, etc., at least we can get them down the right physical treatment path. For example, I had a patient phone consult, prospective patient phone consult, yet just yesterday, uh, with a child who was already 11 years old and already had a curvature of over 60 degrees. Well, that puts them in the very highest risk category because they're still prepubescent and haven't started their cycle yet. So they're already at a surgery threshold. They haven't even really started their main puberty growth spurt. So in all likelihood, that child is going to need surgery. And rather than to um, you know, waste that child's time on boot camp, they're far better off going for, and what I did is referred them for a VBT consult to see if they could be considered a VBT candidate. And VBT is just, you know, in my opinion, is going to be the scoliosis surgery of the future that kind of replaces fusion because, frankly, fusion is barbaric and I think it causes way more problems long-term than it helps in the short-term. But that's a topic for another podcast. Uh, suffice it to say that at ScoliSmart, we're still essentially quarterbacking that case in the sense that, you know what, that child might not be doing our physical treatment, but that child still needs hormone testing, neurotransmitter testing, genetic testing or genomic testing, um, you know, checking their bone density status. All of these things go into the curve. And as most of these authors insinuate from 40 years worth of research, these underlying factors are either what caused scoliosis to happen in the first place or at least allowed a small curve to rapidly progress to the point where now more conventional treatment is ne is necessary, whether that be bracing, whether that be boot camp, whether that be both, uh, or whether that be you know VBT or fusion, et cetera. So all of those things are still underneath. So even if a child goes tomorrow for a surgery of some type, the neurotransmitter imbalance, the hormone imbalance, et cetera, those never get addressed from the physical treatment, no matter what the physical treatment is. And I believe that the reason why a lot of the long-term data on physical treatments is, let's say, less than compelling, even in the surgery realm, is that none of the underlying factors get addressed. I mean, most people don't realize if you give it enough time, most post-fusion curves increase over time. Now, I mean, nobody likes to admit that, but it's the truth, which is why a lot of the newer long-term research on scoliosis fusion surgery has really sort of focused on quality of life parameters, pain parameters, etc., because they, they accept that the curve is still going to increase over time. Of course, the surgery pushed back the set point, and, but the problem is you never got rid of the underlying reasons as to why the curve is there in the first place. Again, the curve is a symptom, and, and perhaps the chief symptom, but a symptom nonetheless of a lot of these underlying things interplaying off of one another. And so to me, it doesn't really matter what physical treatment a child or an adult for that matter does. If we don't take care of those other things concurrently, the physical treatment is going to have a lesser chance of providing the desired outcome. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, whether it's scoliosis smart or no matter what physical method you or, or your child might be pursuing, the reality is, is you have to have these underlying things addressed. And, and if your provider, your PT, whoever you see, doesn't have the ability or doesn't have the desire to work with these things, find somebody who does because it needs to be done. 
and, and it's you know, for example, on the physical treatment side of things, I don't do VBT, I don't do surgery, I don't make money off bracing. I have no skin in the game as far as telling kids to do those physical treatments or not. I do them based on what does the child need. And but the but all children with scoliosis need this metabolic, genetic, hormonal workup to make sure that they don't have these things contributing to their curve or at least to stack the odds in their favor to say, okay, if I'm doing everything possible about the condition as a whole, whatever physical treatment I'm participating in is going to have a much better chance of providing a lasting benefit than if I don't address these. And even within ScoliSmart, we published a study back in, I believe it was 2017, where we looked at a bunch of kids who did ScoliSmart boot camp. And a bunch of those kids, well, all of those kids had neurotransmitter testing at the time, at the beginning. And then as the results started to come in, we kind of created two groups out of those children. Children who took and, and acted upon the recommendations given from the neurotransmitter testing results. And then children who didn't, for whatever reason, might have been financial, might have been uh, philosophical, they just didn't, you know, they didn't want to participate. Or their families didn't want them to participate. And what happened was we had them all back at six months. And what we found is that there was a distinct difference, on average, in the kids who took the advice and did the neurotransmitter support protocols in addition to the physical exercises. And what we found is that the changes that they got from the exercises after boot camp were not only more likely to remain six months later, but also that much more likely to increase compared to where they were when they left boot camp, which was surprising. So, um, whereas the kids who didn't take the neurotransmitter um, recommendations, a lot of them still held their curves within a, a you know a margin of error relative to post boot camp, but there were a, a chunk of those children whose curves started to regress back toward their baseline value. Well. If you're going to invest the time, money, and energy into doing boot camp or whatever physical therapy that entails, I don't even care if it's bracing. Bracing is not free. You want to give it the best chance to work. Even VBT. For the parents out there who have had VBT, they know that they're going to pay something out of pocket for VBT. You want to give VBT the best chance to work. And you still have to address these underlying factors, no matter what physical treatment you're doing. So I, I think... Really, what I wanted to what I wanted to touch on on this podcast is the fact that scoliosis is a is a multifactorial condition. It involves the endocrine system or the hormone system. It involves the skeletal system in terms of the interplay between bone lengthening, bone maturation, bone mineralization, and hormone signaling. There's an interplay there. You also have the brain's control of the neuromuscular system, meaning posture is a neurological event and posture is dynamic. And your brain is constantly telling your muscular system how to fire, when to fire, how to coordinate in their actions relative to the positioning you're trying to accomplish, the movement you're trying to perform, etc. Well, in some cases, when you look at an x-ray of a curvature, orthopedically, you're looking at a curved spine. Neurologically, what you're looking at is what we would call a faulty posture memory. And what that means is, of course, is your brain thinks that that muscle pattern that allows that curvature to be stabilized in that position, the brain thinks that that's normal, even though we know that it isn't normal. Well, if we want the brain to 
develop a new muscle memory habit or a new posture muscle memory, we have to exercise or perform a postural exercise-based activity in a position and from a structure that is more ideal, or i.e. a straighter spine. And we have to exercise in that manner enough that over the course of time, a new muscle memory pattern kicks in and now the brain starts supporting the spinal column in a straighter manner. And that's really the premise of, of all of the boot camp exercises. And, but again, those exercises don't matter either if you don't have the neurotransmitter production and conversion to make those changes stick. For example, serotonin is probably one of the most powerful neurotransmitters in the body. It filters down into a broad range of functions. It, it helps regulate sleep cycle, helps convert into melatonin, uh, a host of things. From a postural perspective, serotonin is responsible for uh, nearly 80% of all of the peripheral nerve pathways that feed muscle firing and muscle coordination, especially in the torso, in the back musculature. Well, if I don't have enough serotonin made or I don't have enough serotonin conversion happening, especially in the central nervous system, I can't make those pathways fire appropriately. More importantly, serotonin is one of those things in the brain that helps convert long-term muscle memory. Well, if I don't have serotonin in the brain and, and the brain's not making it in adequate supplies and it's all the midline structures in the brain, uh, the raphe nuclei, etc., that I'm not going to have as good of a chance of making the exercises I'm learning stick. And, and I mean stick long-term. And when I say long-term, I mean six months, 12 months, three years, five years, etc. When a child hasn't done his or her exercises for a, a day or two and then had an x-ray, how much of their changes are sticking? That's what we're really concerned about. And that's what we really are shooting for, like any, like any provider. And so to us, if we want the best chance of that 24-hour, 48-hour x-ray to look like what we want it to look like, we have to address everything else concurrently. You have to. That's just the way it is. So uh, I, I think the biggest thing that separates you know, what I do as far as being a scully smart doc is, is trying to weigh all of those things equally, not just saying we're just going to do exercises or we're just going to do a brace or you know, we're only going to do XYZ physical treatment or physical therapy. You have to take into account all of these other things. And, and the, the research is all here already. So it's not even like this is new information. I'm going back through. Like I mentioned, that was 1986. Hormone status in girls with idiopathic scoliosis, 1981. So, I mean, again, we're not, uh, we're not talking about new information here. Um, let's see. This is going back to growth hormone status in idiopathic scoliosis, 1980. So, again, not new information. And I, I just pulled up, this is just essentially just so you can uh, follow this on your own. Just from 1980 to 1987 on PubMed, 18 studies talking about different hormone disruptions in girls with idiopathic scoliosis. 40 plus years old on this data, or nearly in some cases 40 years old. That's just relative to hormones. We go back to the neurotransmitter side of things, serotonin, melatonin, etc. We're talking about same thing. 1980 through 2020, we have a total of 24 studies. Again, all neurotransmitter-based. You know how many of these say Mark Morningstar on them? Zero on these. Now, we have neurotransmitter studies published in PubMed, 
But I these are just non-Morningstar, non-Scrolly Smart authors. So a host of information. So I didn't invent this concept. Wish I did, but I didn't. I'm just maybe one of the first clinically uh, or clinical practitioners, clinical researchers, uh, you know, clinical providers that are using this information, applying this information, and acting on this information in the clinical setting to help reinforce the gains that children make from a physical therapy routine. I mean, if I'm a parent, and, and I don't have a child with scoliosis, but I have a child with special needs. I do everything I can for that child because she needs a lot of help. She needs a lot of work. And I want to be as robust as possible in the things that I do for her. And I don't suspect that any other parent whose child has idiopathic scoliosis to be any different. I kind of look at it as, look, if I have this problem and my child, the best time for me to try to act against that problem is while they're still growing. While they're still growing, I don't know about you, but as a dad, I want to throw the kitchen sink at the problem. I mean, figuratively and literally at that at that rate. So to me, it only makes sense to try to investigate all of these other things just to make sure that we're stacking the odds in our favor. Because again, like anything else in medicine, you know, physical therapy, scoliosis, rehabilitation, all this stuff, there, there's a certain art to it. It's, you know, it's not 100% known. It's not 100% effective. I mean, nothing in medicine is. So really when we're, when we're talking about scoliosis therapy, I think at the end of the day, the better way to explain it is really just that we're trying to stack the odds in our favor. I mean, I think that's all anybody can could ask for. I want to stack the odds in my favor. That's it. And at the end of the day, there are kids who don't respond to any kind of therapy like we hope. There are kids that in the past that don't even necessarily get the best fusion outcome or the best VBT outcome. But guess what? If we do everything we can to stack the deck in their favor, they're more likely to get the benefit that they're hoping for. Pure and simple. It doesn't have to be any more uh, any more complicated than that. So anytime you see anybody talking about you know their success rate being 95%, 99%, 100%, uh, honestly, that's not what I'm about. Because again, nobody really knows that. And, and as soon as you tell a parent that, their child's going to be the one who who is in the 1%, is in the 5%. You know, my child's in the 5% of, of a lot of stuff. So it's like, don't talk to me in terms of success rate that way. That data is published. If, if you're seeking a therapy or participating in a therapy, go look at it on PubMed. Go look at its success rate on PubMed. If you can't find it on PubMed, maybe it's not worth doing. The Scully Smart System is published on PubMed. Its success rate is published in PubMed. So we're confident in our data, but the reality is it's not 100%. And so at the end of the day, I think it's more important that you find a provider that says, look, we're going to do everything we can to help your child. And I mean everything metabolically, genetically, hormonally, physically, everything. We want to help the entire condition, not just make the x-ray look better in for sake of all of the other things that we know happen in scoliosis. So little food for thought here in mid-July. Uh, happy summer, by the way, everybody. Um, but th th my take-home message is, look, scoliosis is a very broad condition. There are a lot of factors involved. Even in the last 10 years, a lot of that information has been sort of synthesized and repackaged into review studies and so on that kind of uh, give a lot more uh, technical perspectives to this, uh, uh, to this concept. But scoliosis has to be treated very completely, very robustly. And if you're not getting that in your treatment, look us up. 
Scully Smart works with a lot of physical therapy methods. Why? Because Scully Smart is not just a physical treatment. Scully Smart is a management strategy above and beyond anything else. And it's a, it's it's not just a technique. It's not just chiropractic manipulation. It's not just physical therapy. It's not just massage. It's not just bracing. It's not just VBT. It's a management strategy. It's the idea that you have a provider quarterbacking your child's case who knows everything and anything there is about scoliosis as much as we know, at least by 2021 standards, can work with your child as robustly as possible and get them hooked up with the best therapies that that child needs, whether that be something that's close to them geographically, whether that be you know a child needs tethering or a child, you know, unfortunately, maybe doesn't have access to tethering. And, you know, there are hosts of physical treatments available. So to me, I think the biggest thing that separates us is the fact that we are willing to work with a lot of other providers. I think we are allowed, uh, we are afforded the opportunity to complement a lot of other physical treatments. Now, of course, I'm biased, but as our data shows, I think we are one of the more highly successful physical treatments in terms of Schooly Smart Boot Camp, Scoliosis Activity Suit, et cetera. Um, but they're certainly not the only things out there. And of course, not everybody in the world can get access to a Scully Smart doctor or come to Scully Smart boot camp. So we try to work within the confines of reality too, unfortunately. So uh, anyhow, I, I think that's uh, pretty much my podcast for the week. Um, of course, look me up anytime. Uh, of course, we're on Scoliosis Worlds, our podcast. Uh, look us up on our Scoliosis Warriors Facebook group. Uh, you can also find Scully Smart Clinics at treatingscoliosis.com. Uh, and you can find my clinic, Scully Smart Clinics, Michigan, uh, also known as the Natural Wellness and Pain Relief Centers here in Grand Blanc. So uh, feel free to look us up if you have any questions. Otherwise, uh, I'll see you next month. <laughs>